Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing in our midst, and we praise you for the truth of the saving work of Christ. And I pray this morning as we look at your word, I pray, God, that you would uh, you transform us, you change us. I thank you for uh, this congregation. I thank you for, again, our guest. Uh, I praise you for your grace. And we ask that today you be glorified above all. I pray that you would uh, be my strength and my weakness, oh God. I pray you'd help me to uh, be changed by the truth that I am sharing with others. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you got your Bible this morning, Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. I've entitled this message, Pastoral Priorities, and I, I think that's fitting because uh, when we look at the book of Titus, we're looking at the pastoral epistles. And so it would make sense that Paul would give Titus priorities as a preacher as to how he's to approach this. I was listening to a breakdown of Titus, and um, the speaker was looking at it like this. You know, in chapter 1, you see how the church is to respond to God. Um, and you see the holiness we're called to, the way elders come into this, how elders are to model salvation and the implications of salvation for the congregation. And then you see in chapter 2 how the church is to respond to each other, how they're to live in relationship to one another. In chapter 3, you're looking at how the church is to relate to the world, how the church is to be a light. In chapter 2, verse 10, we see really a passage that sums up a lot of what we've been looking at, where he's speaking to the bondservants, and he says, these bondservants are not to be pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And that's really the heart of what Paul is expressing. He's saying, this salvation is so wonderful in Jesus Christ that he has changed us, he has cleansed us, that now we live lives for his glory. And we do that not only in the life of the church, but we do it in the way we live in the world. And one of the greatest ways of evangelism is a life that displays the fruits of the gospel. And Paul is saying, live this way. Proclaim the necessity of good works. This morning, pastoral priorities. And so what we're going to do is look at three pastoral exhortations. And by looking at these exhortations that he gives to young Titus, who is a pastor and is overseeing so many churches as he is encouraging their start and their health, it's not just going to be words of exhortation and encouragement to a pastor, but it's going to help us as a congregation to see God's call in our life. The first exhortation, hold to the foundation. Hold to the foundation. This is what the heart of Paul is to a young preacher because over and over, there is always going to be error within and around the church. It's just it's something that is difficult to process. And we've looked at this because we've seen the warnings that are not only from the prophets of the false prophets, we've seen the warnings of Christ and false teachers. We've seen warnings from the apostles. 
We see it over and over and over. And, and there will be people who will come in and they will seek to rob you of the freedom that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will distort the gospel. Often they will add works righteousness to it. Often they will fall into the trap of legalism. They will fall into the trap of focus on secondary issues. They will fall into it. And, and now think about it. The heart of Paul is that people live out of the message of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. It is Christ has called us and he has set us free. And now Paul, I mean, you talk about the hills to die on. These are hills to die on for the apostle Paul. And in the first one, hold to the foundation. And what is that foundation? Now, primarily today, we're focusing on verse 8 through 11. And I want you to start in verse 8 because he does something. He mentions it five times in the pastoral epistles, this phrase, the saying is trustworthy. So if you wanted to read First and Second Timothy and Titus and look for that phrase, you would find it several different places. The saying is trustworthy. Now, here's the interpretive question. The interpretive question is, what is the saying he's speaking about? Is it what follows that statement, or is it what has come before? Well, that's a good question. And I think either way you answer it, you're going to have to consider what he's just said. Because you can't understand how, and you keep reading with me, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So these things are what? Verse 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, right? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So the first exhortation Titus, hold to the foundation. And I want us to go back and read verse 4 through verse 7 to see the foundation. The saying is trustworthy. And what is the trustworthy saying? Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I love it, and, and I pray that you would love this because he says the same is trustworthy. It can be taken to the bank. It is good as gold. It comes from God who cannot lie. It is locked in stone. All the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. You can live your life on this. And it is to be the basis of the ministry of the gospel preacher. It is to be the foundation. You move from this, you've wandered into error. I want us to look at this foundation. Hold to the foundation, first exhortation. And underneath this first exhortation, the first thing I want you to consider is a few questions about this trustworthy statement. 
What are they? I love what one commentator says. He says, although he says, this is a trustworthy saying. We have seen the pastorals contain five trustworthy sayings. And then he says, it seems rather to refer back to what precedes it. That is to Paul's glowing statement of salvation. Let's look at it a little further. First question underneath this, what do we learn about God in his saving? What do we learn about God? And we, we glanced at this last time, but notice with me, you go back to verse four, and I, if I said, okay, class, why don't we look at all that we learn about God, you would notice the way he's described. He is good. He is one who acts out of his loving kindness. He, he's loving, he's kind. His mercy and what we've just looked at in chapter 2 is grace. So the first question, what do we learn about God and his saving, is that God has acted towards us out of his goodness. It's the word that uh, often occurs with, you know, you think of philanthropy. You think of benevolence. You think of the goodness, the goodness of God, the character of God and the way he acts towards humanity. He's good. He's loving kindness. Again, you, you think about the way that he is explained here, his, his goodness, his loving kindness, his mercy. If grace is getting what we do, if grace is getting what we do not deserve, mercy here, mercy is, is, is such a beautiful picture of we're not receiving that which we do deserve. All of the punishment and all of the wages of sin, but God has demonstrated mercy. So we see the characteristics and the qualities of God as we look at this trustworthy statement. But I want you to go further with me. Another question we could ask here, what do we learn about the futility of works-based righteousness? What do we learn about it? Well, it's completely worthless. And what does he say there in verse 4? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Is it because we were good people? Is it because that we were religious? Is it because that we earned ourselves standing before God? No, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This morning, as we look at this passage we're reminded of the character of God, and we're reminded of the fact that we cannot save ourselves. But God in Christ Jesus has brought salvation, and it's a salvation that is free. It's a salvation that only he can provide. It's not something we can earn. It's something that Christ earned for us. I was looking at a chart, a chart about all the world religions, and every world religion that you could look at about how they describe man in right standing with God has to do with man's achievement, man's attaining, man's obedience. But you look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it has to do with Christ and what he achieved for us. It has to do with grace. It has to do with the work of Christ. It has to do with atonement. It has to do with sacrifice. It has to do with substitution. And that's the truth of the gospel, the hope that only God can do it, only Christ accomplished it. But we keep going here, and I want you to look at another question. I want to read you a couple of verses. 2 Corinthians illustrates this. For our sake, verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5, 
For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in, in him we might become the righteousness of God. It, we can't earn our way to God, but by grace through faith, when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to our account. And no longer do we stand before God as a sinner. We stand before God in Christ Jesus. And we are justified. We are declared righteous because of the goodness of Christ. The third question, how does this illustrate the new birth? The beauty of this is Ephesians chapter 2 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But notice the language here. A lot of people, they think of salvation only as belief system. They think of, I'm a Christian, and, 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 and they think, okay, a Christian is someone who believes in Jesus. I believe in Jesus, therefore, I'm a Christian. Well, that could be true, but it also could be a misunderstanding, because Christianity is more than just belief. Christianity is regeneration. And this is the language that he says here. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, now this is remarkable. Do you remember in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and, and Jesus looked at Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, if you took that language, Titus helps fill in the gaps of what that rebirth looks like. What happens in the rebirth? The word regeneration, it means restoration. It means rebirth. It's a complete change. It's the idea of what Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And here he describes this work of regeneration with the language of regeneration by saying through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and again, today, what do we look at in the waters of baptism? We didn't look at people that walked into those waters and the water cleansed their sins. No. What, how do they get their sins cleansed? They get their sins cleansed through the work of Christ. And what happens at salvation? At salvation, they are washed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. And it's what Ezekiel spoke of. This is so exciting. I pray that this, this hits you. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Ezekiel 36, 25. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And look, he goes on. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And Paul here is saying, Timothy, hold fast to the trustworthy saying. Hold fast to the trustworthy saying. It is through the goodness, loving kindness, 
and mercy of God that we've been saved. And it wasn't because of our works. It wasn't because of law keeping. It wasn't because of religiosity. It was because of the work of Christ. And this salvation has brought about regeneration. You've been washed and you've been renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I like uh, the cross reference here to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, when he's speaking about the husband loving their wife, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And listen to the words here that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. How? By the washing of water with the word. Do you, do you see the, the picture? It's not literal water, but what is it? The power of the spirit cleansing. Cleansing through the means that God has decided. So we see this first call, this first exhortation is critical. He's saying, Timothy, hold to the foundation. What do we learn about that foundation? Several things. Another part of this foundation I want you to consider here is the focus on the Trinity in this passage. Now, now look at this. Did you catch it? Verse 4, 5, and 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I love this because what makes Christianity distinct from every religion is that we serve a triune God. That's the major distinction of Christianity. And what do we know? I love this from John Stott. He says, for here are the three persons of the Trinity engaged in securing our salvation. The love of God, the Father, who took the initiative. The death of God, the Son, in whom God's grace and mercy appeared. And the inward work of God, the Holy Spirit, by whom we are reborn and renewed. That's a mouthful, isn't it? That's one of those that uh, we need to, like, really chew on. And, and, and you know, when you uh, marinate the meat you're going to put on the grill, you want to marinate it a while. And, and that's one of those where you, you chew on the, the implications and what that means. You chew on what has the Father done? What has the Son done? What has the Spirit done? You know, often you hear people say the Father planned our salvation. The Son purchased our salvation. The Spirit preserves our salvation. And those are wonderful. And this is another element of how the Scripture explains our triune God in the way that he works in our salvation. So consider that. Consider it's not works-based. Consider the character of God. Consider the Trinity. But another thing about this foundation, notice how it focuses on the past, the present, and the future. Paul is saying, Timothy, you focus on the clear, the clear foundation and notice how it covers it all. You see, in one sense, again, another quote here, the past is justification and regeneration. The present, so you got the past. What does it mean to be justified? In, in, in just simple terms, 
to be declared in right standing with God. A lot of people think that they're going to become in right standing with God through their works, that God grades on a curve, that if they work hard, if they go to church, if they read their Bible, if they give, if they're honest with their taxes, if they're kind, if they're nice in society, they're a part of uh, social clubs that are helpful of humanity. No, it's not going to help. Because uh, the wages of sin is death for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the beauty of this. Justification for the Christian is that we're declared in right standing with God, not because of our works, but because of the work of Jesus. So here, Paul describes in this passage that we've been regenerated and we've been justified. One and done. Declared in right standing with God. Now, that's the past. But what is the present? Stott says, the present is a new life of good works in the power of the Spirit. You see what he's doing? The past is covered, but now it sets the stage for the present. And that's why he says, and going on in verse 8 and 9, do you see what he does in verse 8? The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Love this. He's saying, look, this is radical. Titus, focus on the foundation. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It deals with the past. It changes you in the present. I want you to think about that present real quick. This is really the language of Paul. In small groups on Wednesday, you might have, uh, I know, one thing I love about our uh, small groups is that sometimes one question is that all of the groups get to. And, uh, but one of the questions on there was, how does Romans 12 apply to this passage? And listen to this. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And that word spiritual means logical. So, so Paul is setting this up, and he, in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, he speaks about the mercies of God. He speaks about salvation. And then he says, now, offer up your bodies a living sacrifice which is the logical follow-up to all that God has done for you in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul's doing in a different way with Titus. Another example is Ephesians. In Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, he explains the blessings that we have in Jesus, all the blessings that are ours in Christ. And then the commands come in in the second half of the letter. And in chapter 4, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Why? Because if you can see what God has done for you in your regeneration and in your justification, it fuels you to understand how you're to live in the present, how you're to live daily. But then we see again the anchor to this in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, when he tells the bond slaves to live godly so that in everything in their life they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The future's involved here. Do you see the future? He mentions it there. He says in verse 7 and 8, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So put it all together. The past is justification and regeneration. The present, 
a new life of good works in the power of the Spirit. The future is the inheritance of eternal life, which will one day be ours. Timothy, I mean Titus. Titus, hold the foundation. But what is the second exhortation that we see here? The second exhortation is not just hold to the foundation, but Titus, avoid distractions. Avoid distractions. And we pick that up in verse 9. He says, Titus, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Avoid distractions. We got to notice the terms here. Avoid. Avoid literally means to turn and go the other way. Turn and go the other way. Titus don't be distracted as to what your priority is. Your priority is the saving work of God in Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel in the present and our hope in the future. You stick to it. You preach it. You follow it. You hold to it. But Titus, don't be distracted by people who are going to come in and seek to distract. This is fascinating because we need to see the terms and what they mean. And then we need to see if we can build a bridge to understand what it means for us. The terms here, he uses the word avoid, turn, and go the other way. And before we define them, look at the terms that are listed here in verse 9. He says avoid. And then he says avoid foolish controversies. That's one term we got to figure out. Genealogies, what in the world is that about? Dissensions. And then he mentions quarrels about the law. So, so let's try to walk through these real quick. When you look at the pastoral epistles, they all relate to one another. Paul said to Timothy something similar. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, speaking about those who are stirring it up, he describes them as puffed up with conceit, and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But then he says this, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Have you ever noticed that there's groups among Christendom that have discovered a new way? that everybody else has missed, that, that, that people in the Reformation didn't see, that people in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th century didn't see, that faithful believers in the Middle Ages didn't see, 
they've discovered something. And one thing to re remind ourselves of immediately, sincere focus on matters of religion do not always equate with godliness. Sincere focus on matters of religion do not always equate with godliness. And in Paul's day, he was dealing with people who were bringing up foolish controversies. The word foolish is literally the idea of the word we get moronic. Moronic controversies. Controversies, he didn't say to avoid controversy. He said, do avoid foolish controversies speculations uh, described as speculative fancies with God's truth. And, and one of the clues here, he uses the word genealogies. It, what is he saying? Is he saying, uh, Titus, don't mess with genealogies? Well, there's a lot of genealogies in the Bible. You ever done your daily Bible reading? You're like, whoa, I've got two chapters of genealogies. You, you come into the Gospels, we see genealogies. But what was happening in the context of Crete in the context of Titus, in the context of this time. There were legends and myths associated with genealogies. And there were certain people who came around and they said, look, they would provide allegorical interpretations. Allegory basically means whatever somebody says, you create a story around it and say, that really doesn't mean that. It means this, this, and this. Well, how do you know that? That's just what it means. That's how it works. They would take a genealogy, and they would come up with myths, and they would come up with allegorical interpretations. An example of this was an ancient source called the Book of Jubilees. The Book of Jubilees did this. Another thing that you see here, Eusebius. Irenaeus, these are names from church history. If you've been in our class, you remember those guys? They spoke about this, and they sought to just argue, and they sought to have this higher knowledge. And their knowledge led to arguments and quarrels. Look at the next word, dissensions. Well, there you go. Dissensions, it's the love of quarreling the love of arguing, strife of words. There were people that were coming in and they were losing track of the main thing and they wanted to focus on sideshows. Now think about it. You've got Paul seeking to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and you've got people coming in that want to quarrel, that want to talk about these myths, that want to talk about these allegories and the implication is, is that they were putting pressure on those around them to say, hey, if you really want to know the truth, you need to look at this, you need to look at this, you need to look at this. And then he uses a phrase, quarrels about the law. Quarrels about the law. Dogmatic assertions about the law. I was uh, looking at something from different places trying to research this. Tony Morita says something. He says, Paul describes these troublemakers as those engaged in foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes. He says these things are worthless. They are unwise, not worth your time. In his context, the troublemakers were Judaizers who added both to the words of Scripture and to the work of our Savior. They debated theological 
minutiae, created fanciful allegories and mythologies based on biblical genealogies, and added works to the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, thinking of themselves as the theological elite, spiritual know-it-alls, they tore up and would continue to tear up whole households. Now, here's the question. We see the terms, and we see the meanings, but how do we build a bridge that's faithful to the day we live in today? Because we need to understand what it means then, but we also need to think about what are the implications for today. Some people always want controversy. They want to focus on dissensions, and often where they fall into traps is they focus on a heavy discussion on law that actually becomes unhealthy. I'll tell you a story. I feel like one of the things as a pastor, you are called to tell the truth and you're called to protect the flock. I'll never forget it. I got a call about basketball camp a few years ago. And, uh, you know, hey, uh, usually it's like, hey, go to the website. Uh, hey, it's uh, how old? Six to 13. Well, my, th- my two-year-old cousin came last year. Yeah, it's okay. You can bring infants if you want to. You know, If your infant can dribble, bring them. Um, you know, it's those kind of questions. And uh, I don't know how to use online. That's okay. I'll, you can sign up at the church, whatever. Well, this person said, uh, tell me more about this camp. I said, it's a Christian camp. We seek to share the gospel. And they said, uh, hmm, what kind of Christian camp? Uh, what would you like to know? Would you like to know about our statement of belief? What denomination? We're Baptist. Oh. And I said, does that trouble you? You know, I'm so sorry to bring you grief. Uh, well, we don't think that way. I said, you're welcome to come. We'd love to have you. Well, the, the conversation kept going, and it came into, uh, you believe in Christmas? You believe in Easter? You mean you don't keep the feast? You don't observe the dietary laws? At that point, I'm thinking, okay, well, I'd love to talk to you about that. Let's look at Acts 15 and look at what Paul says to the Gentiles once they're Christians and how the Jerusalem Council handled that issue. I'd love to look at Galatians 2. I'd love to see what Paul says in Colossians 2.16 about feast and new moon and Sabbath. I'd love to talk to you about all these things. And, but the one thing that become apparent, we began a text conversation. And the text conversation lasted about a month and involved hundreds of texts. And regardless of any appeal to the scripture, what was historic, what came across, at least with this individual, was that it appeared to me that I was dealing with a modern-day Judaizer. I was dealing with a modern-day Ebionite of the early centuries, and I could not appeal to him. And one thing that became apparent was that we weren't celebrating the commonality of the Lord Jesus Christ and his glorious salvation. There wasn't any sense 
of, you know what? What brings us hope is the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It was quibbles and it was arguments and it was distortions about everything but. And I'll tell you something. I'll warn you about this. You can go to Walmart today, and one of the groups that he was a part of was the Sacred Name Group. And, but the problem is, is, many of these groups don't even agree what the sacred name is. Some spell it a certain way, others spell it another way. And what's ironic is, the very arguments that they bring is that it must be the exact name in order to honor the true name, the Hebrew name, the original name. You'll see a billboard of what the name of God should be. And I'm telling you, what I've observed and in the conversation with this gentleman, I found something. There was not any ability to go to the cores of the gospel, it was controversies about the law at every turn. And Paul says here, listen, Timothy, you stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I tell you, there will be people at every era of the church that will focus on the shadows and not see the substance. They will focus on the old and miss the new. They will focus on the old covenants and not see fulfillment in the new covenant. And here, what's taking place is, you see the heart of this guy. It wasn't that he wanted to attack the Judaizers or attack these people. He wanted to win them. He wanted them to see the freedom. But to a pastor, he's very clear. He's like, Timothy, hold to the foundation. Avoid the distractions. Avoid them. And one thing that became clear is that after about a month and after, I've got the text thread. You're welcome to read it. Actually, I don't want you to read it. But, uh, <laughs> but after a while, I became convicted. I was like, I'm not winning anybody in this. And I would have done great help to myself to take heed to the words of Titus chapter 3 and verse 9. And here we see it. He says, look, be careful. These groups will tell you everything you're doing. And, and I haven't found, I don't know, they may exist. I haven't found any yet that even see a sense of th there are groups that disagree about the Trinity. There are groups that disagree about security in Christ eternally. Remember we talked about you, you do what you do to earn God's favor or you do what you do because of God's favor, but there's some people that do what they do to keep God's favor because they think they're in danger of losing it. And then other Christians get around and they say, have you not learned the deeper way? Have you not learned the greater reality? Have you not learned the greater knowledge? Are you missing something in your Christian experience? And I'll tell you something, they have existed at every stage in church history. Be careful, be wise, and hold to the firm foundation. He says, avoid the distractions. But look, the last one, Mark, the troublemakers. Hold to the foundation. Avoid distractions. Mark the troublemakers. Look what he says. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. What we notice here is the first thing he says is, he says, as for the person who stirs up division, 
the idea is that it, it, he is uh, he's causing problems. It may be doctrinal. It may be more like verses 9 and 10, but it may just be anybody who divides or fractures the fellowship. So it could be doctrinal. It may not be that. It could just be they're divisive. And Paul says, Timothy, I mean, Titus, be careful. He says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Warning, warning. It's a gentle warning. It's out of love. It's like seek to win him, seek to persuade him. But he says, warning. And, and the warning is to be what? As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice. What does it sound like to you? It sounds to me like Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. If your brother's in sin, you know, you go to them. Uh, and, and then what happens? He says, warning. And then he says, avoid him. You see that? He, he says, look, warning once and then twice. But then he says, have nothing more to do with him. And then he says in verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So here's the way I looked at it. You warn him, you avoid him. But thirdly, understand him. It's really important when Paul speaks about unity in the church. You know, I think one good question we can all ask, because when our flesh is when we're choosing to go the way of the flesh, we can be divisive rather than unifying. I know I can. But you know what? Our, our, the question is, is like, am I a vessel of unity within the body of Christ or I am a mark that's divisive? And Paul says, look, he says, Titus, Titus, hold to the word. Hold to the word. Hold to the word and preach the implications of the word. Hold to the word and show people that as they live out the purity of the word, it's evangelistic in its appeal. But number two, he says, look, avoid distractions. There'll be people who will argue about anything and they'll never stop. And they want to quibble and they want to argue. They want to be divisive. And he turns around and he says, look, Mark the troublemakers, Titus. And he's not trying to like execute the troublemakers. What he's doing is he's saying, look, the purity of God's church is at stake. And I want you to love these people. I want you to warn them in the spirit of Christ. I want you to be gentle with them. But if they will not walk in unity, avoid them, dismiss them. Look what he says here. Look at the words he uses. The words he uses is, he says, as for a person who serves up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Understand, what's the root of the cause? The person is warped, sinful, self-condemned. The idea of warped is he's perverse. He's sinful. He's self-condemned. So pastoral priorities. Hold to the foundation. Avoid distractions. Mark dividers. We've been in Titus now for about 10 different times. And I pray we're seeing the overall view of the book. Titus, focus on the main thing. It reminds me of what he said in Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And how would he handle it when people come against that? He tells us right here in Titus 3. 9 through 11. So as we focus on the main thing, I want to read to you one last time before I pray. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, and so now, in, the, in light of that, what does he say? The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Would you bow your head? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your goodness and your love and your grace. Oh God, I pray that we care about the things you care about. I pray that we'd have a spirit of humility in the way we do it. But I pray we'd be fiercely bold. Lord, protect us from error. I pray, oh God, that we would have a firm conviction that comes from you, that stands on your truth, that stands on your hope. And I pray, oh God, that we would boldly proclaim it. Lord, I thank you that even as we think about those who divide, I thank you, Lord, we see your heart and the fact that there's an appeal to them, there's a warning to them, there's an earnest and sincere desire for them to be reconciled. I pray, Lord, that we would trust in your work, that we would rest in your son, and that we would live in freedom out of the implications of what you've done for us in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray.